Good morning, everyone. Nice to see you here this morning. Uh, Our key scripture this morning is going to come from three places in the book of Revelation, uh, from chapter 1, chapter 21, and chapter 22. Uh, So if you have your Bibles, uh, just put them away for right now. (laughs) And I'll read this for you here this morning. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him, so shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write these down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Amen? Amen. God is full of concepts that are difficult for us to grasp. What do I mean? Well, something we know is true about God is that God is indescribable. So if God is indescribable, how can you describe him? Now, we can, we can use our words to try to communicate who God is, but in a very literal sense, our words cannot adequately describe God. Who He is, what He is like, how He loves, how He gives, all of those things are beyond our words. They will fail if we try to contain Him by description. Our God is a God who is so very other than. He is different than. He is more than. He is beyond all that we can imagine or say about Him. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but this is the kind of God that we need, you see. I don't want a God who can be described in his entirety. I don't want a God who can be contained by what I imagine or think. I don't want a God who can be controlled. But it's hard for us to even consider how much more he is. The passages we read from the book of Revelation, though, this morning, they emphasize two very key points that I want to bring home to you today. The first is that God is the Alpha. He is the beginning He's where everything starts. But what this means, this statement that God is the Alpha, goes even further beyond that. And the term of, there was nothing before God. 
And God was not created because if he was, he would no longer be the all-powerful God that we know. Because something would have put him into his place. Therefore, there would be something more powerful than him in existence. And instead, God has been before there was anything. You cannot imagine a time or a place or scenario before God because it does not exist. He has always been. And this is followed up with an equally important concept. He is the omega, the last, the ending. When everything is said and done and everything melts away, guess who is still going to be there? God. He is not just the beginning, he is also the end. He has no expiration date. He will be in existence far beyond forever. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Nothing before and nothing bringing him to a conclusion. I think that these two ideas, as complex as they are, are relevant to us this morning as we live in a time and a place where the created debates the very existence of the Creator. There are countless books, articles, and interviews where the writer or thinker claims to know why God cannot be. And some of the arguments they give are compelling. But there is one simple truth I want us to remember today. God has always been. God always will be. And just because someone denies his existence it does not mean that he ceases to be. And just because someone says he is not real, it does not mean that in that moment he ceases to be real. God cannot be thought out of existence. He cannot be rationalized out of who he is. And when the story that is life on earth comes to an end, he will be there making all things new. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. All glory, worship, and praise be to the powerful, eternal, loving, just, and graceful God who has called us together here this morning. He is the beginning and the end. Um, So, we have been going through uh, the story, which has encouraged us to read the Bible as one long narrative, uh, telling about the relationship between God and his people. Uh, And God God has been the wonderful part about the story. Um, The things that he has done, the way that he has loved his people, the way that he has provided, God has been uh, the the element that has carried the story uh, through to where we see it today. Uh, Humanity has been like a sore on the bottom of your foot. (laughs) On the ball of your foot, so you have to keep stepping on it, and it just keeps hurting. Um, So just to to really quickly bring us back up to speed, The nation of Israel asked for a king because they wanted to be like all the other nations. God warned them, however, that if they had their own king, then their king would do lots of terrible things to them, like take their land, take their children, 
use them to fight in wars, do all these different things. But the people still wanted a king. So God uh, gave them Saul, who was not such a great king. And Saul was followed by David, who was basically the best king in so many ways. Uh, David was, was a great man who loved God with all of his heart and, and followed God in, in almost every way. Um, of course, he did fail and, and fall terribly, but even after he did, he came back to God and God was with him. And God had made a promise to David that David, uh, David's line would be on the throne uh, forever, that one of his children would always sit on the throne. After David came Solomon, who um, his heart was not quite as tender to God's as David was. Uh, Solomon took over when David passed, and he guided Israel to heights of power and wealth that were beyond compare. But he was also heavily influenced by everyone around them. And by the time that Solomon's reign ends, the people are confused and scattered again. When Solomon passed, God split the nation into two. And in the north, you had Israel. And in the south, you had Judah. So you had basically ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south, and the tribes warred against each other, and the people became vulnerable uh, to all of the enemies that surrounded them. And since that time, God had been trying to desperately reach his people, so he sent prophets to them. Okay, now a lot of times when we hear the word prophet, we think about someone who tells the future, which is sort of what they did. But their main job really was to go to the people of God and to speak the truth of God to them. And so often it was something like, if you don't stop doing this, then this is going to happen. Right? It's a reality check plus a glimpse into what could happen if they don't turn their way around. So prophets were very, very unpopular people in general. uh, Because their job was to go and to tell people, hey, these are all the things that were wrong. So he sent prophets to speak uh, to the people on his behalf, but the people of God were ruled by evil kings that didn't care uh, about God. They didn't honor God. They worshipped all these foreign gods. We've talked about them before. There were the Baals and the Asherahs. Uh, the Asherahs were honored by these wooden poles that they would just stick in the ground, and they would worship those things. They were worshiping golden animals, golden calves. So God decided that he was going to give up the northern kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom of Israel, those ten tribes that went north, they were so far gone. If you remember way back, I think it was two weeks ago, (laughs) right? When the kingdoms were split into two, the first thing that the northern king did was to create a dummy religion that mirrored what God had done. And so the north has been gone for a while, and so God had decided that he was going to give up the north. If they don't want me, they don't have to have me. But he was not going to give up Judah. And the reason why he was not going to give up Judah was that he had made a promise to David that that someone would sit on the throne from David's family. So I look at all of this, and I've said this to you multiple times, uh, but it still just remains true. Uh, This is a terrible mess. If the story is about God and his relationship with his people, look at the point that we have now reached. God is so fed up with half with some of them 
that he's willing to let them go. And they don't even pay any attention to him and haven't for generations. They are completely gone. And, and we talked about this two weeks ago. The challenge that God has at this point, because he has his people, is how does he go and speak to a people who genuinely no longer know who he is? We've had this problem before, right? Back when they were in Egypt, and they were discovering who God was, really for the first time as this big nation of people. And we find ourselves in a worse position because they've walked away from God again and they no longer know who he is. Now, if we're looking at this as a story, and if we trace this line and followed it all the way through, there is a very reasonable question that we should ask at this point. And that is this. Who is dictating the terms of the story? Now, we want to say God. Because we're in church, and God seems like the correct answer. But if we're just paying attention to the story, who does it seem is dictating the terms of the story? It seems like humanity is. Now, we've seen God move behind the scenes and act and work and do all kinds of things in spite of what humanity was doing. But God has been thrust into this sort of reactionary place. If you'll turn around, then I'll take care of you. If you come back to me, I will provide for you. If you keep running, then I'm going to have to give you up. And God is having to respond to the actions of the people all the time. Are you with me? Great. Are you not? Oh, no. But are you back? Because that would be wonderful. Oh, no, you're gone again. Okay. And he has to do that. And so it seems... Like humanity is dictating the terms. And if this is what this relationship is like, honest to goodness, how can God keep chasing these people? Like something has to break down at some point, doesn't it? Something has to give. And we've seen glimpses of it, certainly, when God gave up the world, flooded it, Saved one family. When God tried to stop trying to convince everyone and just went to Abraham and his family. And we're seeing it again where God says, fine, I'll hold on to you and the rest of you can just go. You know, I, I'm giving this up. But the thing is, is that the ugliness is not over. In fact, events are going to be set in motion. Uh, we're going to see this week. And what God had said would happen is about to, in fact, happen. So first off, um, as he had promised, the first thing that we see in our story this week with Isaiah is that God did, in fact, give up the north. Now, here's kind of the sad thing about it. The north might have never, probably never even realized it. Because they had been so far away from God for so long. Israel, uh, the land that they lived in, it was situated in the midst of some really large empires. That as, as great as Israel was during the reign of Solomon and other kings and queens were coming to them, these other empires surrounded them. So to the, to the southwest of Israel, there was Egypt. You've heard of them before. They've played into this story. Uh, to the southeast, uh, Babylon was on the rise as a world power. And to the northeast, Assyria was the, the big kid on the block. And they were the main empire in the whole area at this time. So, 
for a smaller nation like Israel, which remember is now divided, they've lost a lot of their wealth, they've lost a lot of their power, although they've been living well, which is part of the reasons why they don't understand why that God isn't with them anymore. They pretty much have had a lot of what they want, but they're a small nation. And so for this small nation to survive, surrounded by three large nations, what do they need to do? Hey, man, how you doing? Would you like to be our friend? They have to make allies. It's the really only the logical way for them to survive. And so the last king of Israel, his name was Hosea, not Hosea from last week, but Hosea. Uh, he was the last king of Israel. And, and he had uh, an alliance with Assyria. And so that was smart because Assyria was the biggest you know, kid on the block, like I said. But then he decided that if, if one ally was good, you know what would be better? Two. So he went out and became an ally of Egypt as well. And then the king of Assyria, whose name was Shalmaneser, discovered that Hosea had cheated on him with Egypt. And that was the last straw. So the first part of our story this morning In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, in the south, Hosea, son of Elah, became king of Israel and Samaria. By the way, I'm going to butcher so many names today. I appreciate your uh, kindness there. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but did not like the kings, uh, but not like the kings of Israel who preceded him. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up to attack Hosea who had been Shalmaneser's vessel and had paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria discovered that Hosea was a traitor, for he had sent envoys to So, king of Egypt, and he no longer paid tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore, Shalmaneser seized him and put him in prison. The king of Assyria invaded the entire land, marched against Samaria, and laid siege to it for three years. That's a long time. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. He settled them in Halah and Gozen on the Habar River and in the town of Medes. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they worshipped other gods. They did wicked things that aroused the Lord's anger. They worshipped idols, though the Lord had said, You shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, Turn from your evil ways, observe my commands and decrees, in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your ancestors to obey, and that I delivered to you through my servants the prophets. But they would not listen, and were as stiff-necked as their ancestors who did not trust in the Lord their God. So... The people of Israel were taken from their homeland into exile in Assyria, and they are still there. Okay, I love that we get an explanation along with this, because it's important, and we've seen this explanation before. Why was Assyria, why was Assyria able to come in and take the nation of Israel? Why? Because they had disobeyed God. And because God was no longer with them. Now, how could they have changed things? 
they could have turned back to God. They could have stopped worshiping idols. They could have stopped relying on relationships with other nations. It's all laid out there for us. Turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your ancestors to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. Come and live with me. And you don't have to worry about any of that stuff. But they didn't do that. They wouldn't do that. And so they were taken into captivity by the nation of Assyria. This was not a good thing, being taken captive by the nation of Assyria. Uh, This was around 721 BC, so roughly 700 years before um, the birth of Jesus. And and this is is what they faced here. Um, So in response again to uh, them aligning with Egypt, the Assyrians attacked. So standard Assyrian policy was to deport vanquished enemies. So you were no longer allowed to stay in your own land. And so they took them off to live in these other places, which were mentioned earlier. And what this did, it was a strategic move because it spread their enemies throughout the empire and destroyed any sense of national identity that they had. So the first things that happened, that happened when they were taken off is they stopped being Israel completely. They were just spread out throughout the land. Um, carvings on the wall of some Assyrian ruins uh, depict what would happen to those who fell in defeat. I'm sorry for the graphic nature of what I'm about to say. If you want to cover your ears, uh, you're welcome to do so. Um, but Assyria really used torture and humiliation to then also break the will of the people so that they wouldn't want to try to get back together. So there's pictures that display uh, soldiers um, piling um, heads and bodies on spears, skinning people alive, um, forcing steel hooks into people's noses and leading them uh, like they were oxen. Um, and often they, dis- they dismembered, you know, they, they took people apart. Um, so people would be, would be without a hand or without a foot or without tongue or without ears. Um, and Israel was too hard-hearted to realize that the reason for their downfall was the fact that they had turned from God. They thought that everything had just gone wrong. But here's the real truth. They had had 19 idolatrous kings in a row. 19. So by this point, they are no longer gods. And then the Assyrian army arrived and everything changed. Now Judah in the south, (coughs) Judah in the south, they actually paid more attention to God. It's hard to say that they really stuck with God because you don't see a whole lot of that, but they did actually have a relationship with God. So in the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. And because he did all of that, what was the result? The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. Therefore, because the Lord was with him, he was successful in whatever he undertook. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. Okay, this is gutsy here, right? 
rebelling against, what have we just established about Assyria? They're rough, and they are not nice. And they're bigger, and they are stronger. But Hosea says, I'm sorry, not Hosea, Hezekiah. (laughs) Hezekiah says, I am with God, and therefore God is with him. And he did that important thing, which was he went around and he tore down all the idols. And because God was with him, he could not fall. So now we have a story in stark contrast to what we just saw. Israel had left God's presence, God's presence left them, and therefore what happened to them? They fell. But with God on their side, Judah stayed strong against mighty enemies. And so they faced the king of Assyria, whose name was Sennacherib, is how I'm going to say it. We'll just, we'll go with that. So he decided that he wanted to come over and, and take Judah. And so he went down to the city of Jerusalem and surrounded it with all of his forces. Then the, then the commander, and so this is, this is Assyria talking to, um, talking to Judah at this point. Then the commander stood and called out in Hebrew, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you from my hand. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me. Then each of you will eat fruit from your own vine and fig tree and drink water from your own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey. Choose life and not death. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for he is misleading you when he says, The Lord will deliver us. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Okay. Then there's five words. So Hezekiah is staying true to God, and what is he telling everyone? Guys, we have God. God is going to deliver us. Yes, I know we're surrounded. Yes, I know who it is. But God will deliver us from the Assyrians. And so the Assyrians, what do they know about themselves? We're some bad dudes. And so fine, you can, you can, you can try to stand against us, but your king is lying to you. And you're going to fall. So if you come out now, and just come and be friends of us. You can have, this is great, I love this. You can have some of the fruit that's already yours. You can eat some of that. You can drink some, you know, some of the stuff that's already yours. Yeah, you can have some of that. And then I'm going to take you to a land that is like your own. So who's telling the truth and who's lying? Well, Hezekiah, we know, is telling the truth. But it's fascinating to see how Sennacherib twists the truth. And what have we seen the people of God do over and over again throughout their history? When they are threatened and they are unsure of what to do, they tend to not trust God. So this was the strategy of Sennacherib. 
So here's what happened. Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. I love this. He, he, he went to the temple and he just laid the letter in front of him. Okay? In front of God. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to the words Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste these nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them. For they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord our God, deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. Then Isaiah, son of Amos, sent a message to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I have heard your prayer concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria. This is the word that the Lord has spoken against him. Okay, let's stop there for a second. I love what, I love what he said. I just love, and remember we've talked about this several times. You're waiting for someone who kind of gets it, who kind of understands what's going on, who sees past, you know, the next five minutes and understands who God is. And, and there are so many great things that Hezekiah says. What does he recognize? Sure, other gods have fallen. But what are they? Idols. They are wood and stone. So you know what? Of course they're going to fall. But you are the one living God. And he does things that we've seen other people before him do. Moses, Abraham. What does he say? He says, deliver us and then the whole world will know that you are God. The whole world will know that you are God. So God responds to two, in two ways. He responds to Hezekiah, and he also decides he's going to respond to Assyria. So here's what he says to Assyria. Who is it you have ridiculed and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes in pride? Against the Holy One of Israel... By your messengers, you have ridiculed the Lord. This is the opening shot, right? And what does God want them to know? You didn't know who you were messing with when you walked in here and said all these things. But I know where you are (laughs) and when you come and go and how you rage against me. Because you rage against me and because your insolence has reached my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will make you return by the way you came. Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, he will return. He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. Remember, he has a promise here. But I love what he says. Who knew that God was such a great smack talker? (laughs) He's talking some junk right here. Okay? And listen to what he says. I love that. I will lead you away with my hook in your nose. 
my bit in your mouth. And by the way, you're not coming anywhere near this place. Try to shoot an arrow at us. Go ahead. See what happens. You're not going to get close to us, and I am going to break you. So that night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies! Exclamation point. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He goes home and gets murdered. <laughs> Seriously, that's what happens to him. It's worth noting here that, uh, let me just ask this question. What did Judah, Hezekiah, what did they have to do in order to beat the Assyrian army? They had to trust in God, and then what? And then go to bed. And while they were sleeping, God took care of it. To where when they woke up the next morning, what did they see? The Assyrian army uh, packing up all their stuff and getting ready to go. Why? Because it makes a pretty big difference to have God on your side. You can walk away from him, and when you do, it leaves you vulnerable to all the things that are outside. They can come in, they can take you over, they can lead you off, they can destroy who you are and everything about you. Or, you can trust God, and even though you are surrounded by enemies for days, you can go to bed, and God will take care of it. It's a pretty good story. It's a pretty good story. In the meantime, the prophet Isaiah, who was mentioned previously, he had started out in Judah and he was receiving words from God and so he was communicating with both Judah and Israel at certain points. And he was getting all kinds of visions during this same time. And it was about things that were going on, but it was also about things that were going to happen in the future. And when we look at what these visions are, it gives us more insight into the question I asked earlier. Who's making this story go? The message that he received were really important because when everything is falling up, they, they tell us something. When everything is falling apart, what did God want his people to know? When you're surrounded by Assyrians, what do you want people to know? When, when people have left, what do you want them to know? And Isaiah received some of the most important images that God perhaps communicated to a prophet. Here's the first one. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. 
Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. This is my favorite reply that anyone gave to God in the Bible. Ever. Now, why is this image so significant in the middle of what's going on in the nations of Judah and Israel? What does it say about God? He's there. He is sitting on the throne. He is so much more that Isaiah believes he's going to die. Because he cannot take... In fact, the heavenly creatures that surround him cover their eyes so that they cannot look at him. That's who he is in this place. He is too much for anyone to handle. And yet, what is he looking for? Someone who will go and talk for him. Because the world does not see that the earth is full of his glory. Assyria believes the world is full of their glory. Everyone believes the world is full of their glory. They believe that their calves and their, uh, their poles and all these different things, that these things have given them what they have, and yet Isaiah is transported to a place where it is abundantly clear that God is in control. And everything reflects His glory. Anything else is just fake. And when asked, who will go? Isaiah says, here I am, send me. But there's a, there's a side note that happens before that. What does God do for Isaiah? He takes away his sin so that he can go. Now that kind of seems like a throwaway to us. We're so used to the concept of our sin being taken away. But this is foreshadowing people. This is telling us something about who God is and what he is going to do. Because the second message that he was given was a message of restoration. The people had turned away from God and faced the consequences of exile and oppression, but the story was not over because God, in spite of all this, had not forgotten them. And he wanted to be their God again and to give them everything that he could give them. So Isaiah's prophecies did speak of judgment, but they also spoke of a return back to their home. Listen to this. The Lord will have compassion on Jacob. Once again, he will choose Israel and will sell them in their own land. Foreigners will join them and unite with the descendants of Jacob. Nations will take them and bring them to their own place, and Israel will take possession of the nations and make them male and female servants in the Lord's land. They will make captives of their captors and rule over their oppressors. On the day the Lord gives you relief from your suffering and turmoil and from the harsh labor forced on you, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. 
How the oppressor has come to an end. How his fury has ended. The Lord has broken the rod of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers. This is what the Lord says. In the time of my favor, I will answer you. In the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people, to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances, to say to the captives, come out, and to those in darkness, be free. Shout for joy, you heavens. Rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, you mountains, for the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Well, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. Your children hasten back and those who laid you waste depart from you. Lift up your eyes and look around. All your children gather and come to you as surely as I live, declares the Lord. You will wear them all as ornaments. You will put them on like a bride. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hope in me will not be disappointed. Then all mankind will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. There's some powerful images here. Relief from suffering. Freedom and rejoicing. A mother's love for her child being like a bride. But the message of this is one of salvation and restoration. That though things have fallen apart, and this is amazing people, God is going to bring it all back together. God is going to bring... Why? Because he does not forget. You do. In fact, even a mom with a baby can forget. Which seems ridiculous. How can you forget the baby you're feeding? Well, God will forget even less than that. And this is going to happen. The the thing is, is that the people that Isaiah was speaking to did not deserve this message. But God will not give up on the ones that he loves. He will restore his people. He will once again be their God and they his. But there is more going on here than just the restoration of Israel or Judah. Because God has something else planned as well. Something that is going to not just restore these people, but that is going to restore all people. Something that will be for everyone who has fallen away from him. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. 
The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet, and listen to this, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with their transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Who is driving this story? Sure seems like the actions of these people are driving the story. It sure seems to get me down to see them do these things over and over and over again. I mean, I know I'm stupid, but I don't like to read about other people's continued stupidity as well. It's bad enough I have to live with myself. And it's a different story when I see things that way. When I ask, how can God do this? How can God? And how you just see this thing rushing down the river, heading toward the waterfall, and you just know, you just know that it's going to end terribly. And then, God says three things to us. Number one, He's still on the throne. No matter what this looks like, this mess, God is still on the throne. And his glory is filling not just the throne room, but the entire earth. Number two, he longs to bring redemption to those that he loves. And he doesn't forget those that he loves. And he looks forward to a time when his people can just be gathered back to him and he no longer has to watch them hurt. He longs for that time. And lastly, he is going to do what is necessary to bring that salvation to everyone who is hurting and has fallen away from him. They don't have to figure it out. We don't have to figure it out for ourselves. 
Because there's nothing we can do to solve this problem. Yes, we create it. Yes, we sustain it. Yes, we feed it like it's our little pet. But there is nothing we can do to stop it. And God, 700 years before Jesus, looks forward and says, there is a time that's coming where one will step forward for all of you. Where one will suffer, be punished, and die. And he will take everyone's sin upon himself. And when he takes everyone's sin upon himself, you will find your salvation. God is writing this story. And though we may try to change it, mess it up, and destroy it, God is still on his throne. He wants to redeem. And he is going to bring salvation to us. That is good news, people. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your Son, Jesus. Father, we are ashamed of the way that we try to take over your story. But God, we are thankful that you are writing it. That beneath all of our layers of failure, of insult, of the ways that we turn away from you, you are working and moving and saying, I am still in control. I want you to be redeemed. And here is how you find salvation. We do not deserve this. But we are grateful. Thank you, God, for loving us in a way that is indescribable. For being beyond compare. For not loving us as we love others but for loving and caring and providing in the way that only you can. We lift your name high. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need any prayers or encouragement this morning or you want to know this God who has done these things for you, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing this song together.